Welcome to No Nonsense Nonprofit, where you can get actionable tips and tools to advance your mission work. I'm your host, Sarai Johnson, founder and principal consultant at Lean Nonprofit. I started Lean Nonprofit because nonprofits are businesses too, and I want to help you run yours like a boss. So enjoy today as we talk about No Nonsense Nonprofits. Hi, everybody. Today on No Nonsense Nonprofit, we're going to be talking with my friend and former colleague, Sarah Puglio, and we're going to be talking a lot about family leave issues and the way that nonprofits can lead the way in helping to make things more equitable for people who have caregiving needs in their families. And I wanted to give a little preface to this because we're going to be talking about a workplace that we both shared in common several years ago and our um, respective experiences having babies while we worked there or thinking about having babies while we worked there. Um, and I want to really just point out that we're not trying to villainize a certain workplace or specific people in that workplace, bosses, boards, etc., but rather to speak to a much broader issue that we all face as human beings in the world, in the working world, especially here in the U.S., where we really don't have family leave uh, practices or rules really in place to protect most of us. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're really going to be thinking about how can nonprofits change this reality for the people who work in nonprofits and for the broader culture as well. So I hope that you enjoy it. And uh, without further ado, here is Sarah. Hello, welcome to the podcast today. My guest is Sarah Puglio. She's a nonprofit management genius and a mother and my friend. So I met Sarah years ago when we both happened to be pregnant in grad school. And you may recall one of my other guests, Michelle Bixler, was in the same boat. So we were all three the weird pregnant people in our grad program uh, at the University of Oregon working on her master's of public administration. So Sarah also then later came to work with me at NEDCO as a communications manager. Mm -hmm. And uh, we worked together there for several years and have continued to be super tight buds ever since. And I have her here today to talk with me and you about working families and nonprofits and how we can be more supportive of families. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I will say, I do remember that moment when I was like, there are other pregnant people in this program. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. And may I say that we all stuck out? Uh, We did. We did. But I remember also like running Michelle Bixler down after a presentation she had being like, you're pregnant, how do you do this? Which I think, you know, fits very nicely into this conversation because the reason why I was going back to graduate school, as as we all were, I think, was to, you know, help accelerate our careers. And the fact that we were also raising families at the same time, you know, we had a lot more potentially to navigate um, than your average Joe who was in grad school with us at the time. So That is so true. So it's, I think that's a really interesting point. Like we, we did have a funny experience in grad school to some degree because we were kind of an anomaly there in that we were pregnant. Um, and even to the point where I remember in a lot of our classes, so our department wasn't like one of the fancy ones at the university. So we got kind of schlepped around to lots of different buildings and different rooms. And the thing I remember absolutely the most is always being like, I felt like I was always nine months pregnant the whole time. (laughs) But when I just got to the point where I couldn't actually fit into the weird desks, the kind that have like the hinge and they lift up as if you're still in like high school or something. So I'd have to like sit in one with the desk up and then have another one turned around backwards and have it like facing me. It's the only way that I could manage getting through. (laughs) But I think that really speaks to our ability to just make the most of any situation, right? Which is what you do, unfortunately, when you are in the nonprofit sector is, you know, a lot of times you are in an organization that is strapped for resources and you have to make do 
you know, and I think, I don't know if this is a good segue, but we did work for this organization who was like, no, you don't actually have to use, you know, a cardboard box as a way to hold up your monitor. Like, we will actually get you a stand, and that's okay, because we need you to be able to have what you need to do the best job possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's always the case, and I definitely work for a lot of nonprofits where you just, you know, your phone was, like, partially made out of duct tape, and... That's just the way it was. Yes, absolutely. And uh, this is a good segue because in some way, uh, how we deal with families in the workplace is a little bit duct taped together, right? Like I think we um, both have experiences in the workplace having children and working and figuring out how to do that while also maintaining our careers and the trajectory that that we're on and that we desire for ourselves and also balancing that with what we want for our families. Um, I think we find ourselves in a position where we have to make a lot of choices and trade-offs and sometimes that's just a necessity, but sometimes that's also um, limiting and a little bit unjust. Yes. If you, if you ask me. No, and I agree. <laughs> Hence this podcast. Yeah. So how about we start with um, sharing some personal experience with what it's been like for you to um, be in the workforce. Could you, do you mind telling us just a little bit about what Uh, you've been doing since you've had your kids and and how that worked for you? Yeah, sure. So as we were talking about, I was pregnant with my first child during graduate school. And so I basically, um, you know, navigated the the educational institution while trying to navigate being a first-time mom with my partner, which was fun, but did allow us a lot of um, resources, actually, maybe more so than when I actually started working outside of the home um, afterwards, um, you know, we had access to a great healthcare plan, um, and lots of extra services that helped us, you know, keep food on the table, keep a roof over our head and all of that. That might also be sort of indicative of where we live because Oregon is pretty, pretty, um, a state that, that does support working families, maybe more so than other places I've lived. Anyway, I was lucky enough to get a job with NEDCO like right around graduation and so it was a sort of known like I walked in with all right I'm gonna sign this letter of intent to work here here's what I need I'm not just gonna negotiate my salary but I also need to negotiate other things like what is your you know sick policy what is your flexibility on hours because I have to take my child to daycare and that sort of thing Um, and luckily our boss at the time was pretty open to those things at least on paper and I think that the workplace on paper really provided kind of a, a framework of resources for, for families, um, which was really nice. But I also was doing this for the first time, so I didn't know that I might need more than what was what was being given or being offered. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came time again um, for my, my partner and I to choose to have another child, um, I remember the when we were trying, I was still working at NEDCO, and so I talked to HR about, um, AKA Anne, to the one person who worked <laughs> in that room. But when we were trying again, I remember, you know, talking to human resources about what my options were for maternity leave. And there really weren't any at all. It right. was, we will hold your job because that's the law, but there's no, there's no paid leave. There's really, um, there are no benefits whatsoever. Your job will be there because that's the law. Which, as we just discussed off off camera or whatever, it was only because our organization had over twenty five employees. Right. So if you work for a smaller organization, they they really don't have to provide that. Right. Um, so 
my job was there, but that's it, you know? And when you come back, what does your job actually look like? You know, how has it changed and morphed while you've been gone unless you've been obsessively in communication with your boss during that time, even though you're supposed to be taking leave? And I was just reminded of a situation at the same organization in a different office where a woman, um, you know, took her leave and had her baby when she came back was laid off not long not long after for, you know, reasons that, of course, on paper were not at all correlated, but obviously were. Mm. And I think that her pregnancy really um, exacerbated maybe a, a hard situation there as it was. But, you know, you look at that from the outside and you go, what? How is that at all in support of a working family? Right. Well, yeah, I think that leads to the question of, I mean, you've said that it looked like we had some family-friendly policies on paper, and that in, you know, in practice, it may have actually felt different to exercise whatever policies we did have. So there's, mm-hmm. there was a little bit of, uh, a little bit, often there was some over discomfort or hostility with people who had to use some time. Mm-hmm. So if you had to, if your, your kids were in daycare, for instance, which they would be because you're working mm-hmm. um, most of the time, <laughs> the, then they get sick all the time, right? Especially when they're little, they're exposed to just this cesspool of germs, which is daycare. And so they're constantly sick and you have to take them to the doctor or you have to keep them out of school because they have a fever and they can't go back for 24 hours or whatever it is that you have to do. And that was a challenge, you know, and there were times where, um, it seemed like we had more flexibility and we did for a while. And, and when, when things got kind of stressful in the culture, in the organization, the family friendly policies were things that were like immediately sort of tamped down or restrained. Right. Right. My, our boss actually jokingly said to me one day, maybe after like the, you know, bazillion time that I'd had to keep my daughter out of school because she had a fever. Cause that's what she does. She just gets fevers. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> she was like, you know, in my day, what we used to do is just give them a little Tylenol and boot them off to school. And I was like, okay, well, if I did that, I would not be taking care of my child at all. Right. And I would also be going against the policy of her school, which I love and value very much. And and those policies are in place for lots of reasons to help protect us all. And that's obviously not being very supportive at all of my family and what I need to do to do my best work here. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you were talking about, um, looking into the options that you had for maternity leave and you didn't have any because I used them all up by having two children of my own before you did. Right. And what was your experience? Because you were in a higher position within the organization. Yeah. So when I had my first child, I was still in grad school and I was something at, at the organization. I can't remember. I think I was like, maybe the program and resource development director at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was writing all the grants and I was doing all the program developments and I was overseeing the program departments. Um, it, and so I was pretty indispensable. Like I had made myself indispensable really foolishly in the organization. <laughs> um, and so what I had planned to do was take eight weeks of maternity leave. Cause I felt like that was so much. And I was definitely a workaholic at the time too. So taking that much time off work felt like such a weird idea yeah. Yeah. that I, I couldn't imagine it. And I happened to have a pretty easy, you know, childbirth experience. The baby came and everything was wonderful and perfect. And I had about two weeks before I had to go back to school. 
And I went back to school and was able to take the baby with me to school because um, our department was really cool about that. So it was never a, a question. And, you know, of course, Michelle had her baby around the same time. And mm-hmm. so it was pretty easy and kind of normal for everybody to be around babies for a while. I know. I was pregnant and in classes with you and your babies. And yeah. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like you set up um, this, you know, environment in which I thought, wow. What, what, how lucky am I that this happened at this time in my life that I'm here? And then I entered the workforce and it was just such an eye opener. It was totally different. different. Yeah. Well, for me at first it wasn't, at first it was awesome. So what happened for me is I I had gone back, um, I'd just gone in for check-ins now and then because I stayed, I did stay really connected. Not super controlling, but just, you know, in the loop about stuff. And there were a few deadlines that had come up while I was out that we really, really wanted to move on, like grant deadlines. Uh, one mm-hmm. was the AmeriCorps VISTA application, um, and we really wanted to put one in because we had a good idea for it, and that's how we got Abigail. So that was, you know. Oh, good job. Shout out to Abigail. What's up? Someday I'd like for you to be on my podcast, Abigail, just so you know. Um, so anyway, we we I decided to go back because they asked me to come back. I think I had been gone like maybe four or six weeks or something like that, but part of the deal was that if I came back early, I could bring in my child. So I had him with me in the office, um, and I had him with me for another two months or so. So he, he was maybe like three or four months old when he started just staying with his dad because his dad was just in school at the time. So he had a pretty flexible schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put him in daycare at six months and that, that worked out great. So it was okay. Everything kind of worked out then and people enjoyed having the baby in the office. And it was pretty easy for me to do that with him for whatever reason. Like he wasn't super demanding and he was just kind of happy to hang out right, you in had- his little playpen or nursing or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you didn't have a high-needs child, which could totally change that dynamic. Yeah. You know, and I think it was wonderful that I was able to take my kid to work because that was what I wanted to do at the time. So I was happy to be there, and it was it was cool. And I was healthy, you know, and I was still like, yeah. oh, well, you know, I had taken enough time where I was like, I'll go to my six-week follow-up appointment and, you know, keep track of my health in general and, and really felt okay about it. And I don't think I worked the normal amount that I used to work when I first went back with him. I think I was probably working, like, 40 hours a week. So this, which, yeah. If you know Soraya, you know that's like half time. Yeah. Not anymore, FYI. I'm, I'm in recovery. Yeah. She's in Workaholics Anonymous. Yes. Well, not so anonymous. Yeah. Workaholics in the, in the world that now you all know. So what I will say too, I just want to interject that we are, of course, talking about, you know, two white women who are at least middle class, very well educated. Obviously, we're talking about graduate school, right? So we are talking about a workplace environment that, you know, really only exists for some. Right. You know, and even even between our positions, like you were saying, I was higher up in the organization than you were. It is true that I was treated differently. You know, I was able to do that and bring in my child. If I had been an asset building counselor at the time, I wouldn't have been able to take my child to work because I would have had to be meeting with clients and teaching classes. And um, the expectations on that job would have been totally different. I wouldn't have even had my own office. You know, I'd only just moved into this cushy, nice office a little while before that because before I'd been schlepped around. I was like, when I was pregnant still, I was like in the storage room. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> then I ended up moving into what ended up being my main office forever. And so I had enough room for my kids pack and play and all that. So it was, it was a little bit, uh, well, it was completely more accommodating to me because I was in that position. And then even when I, when I had a worse experience the next time, I was still able to have a lot more flexibility afforded to me than other people in other positions 
were even within the same organization because I was the assistant director. So it was, you know, number two in command. And I was, I had some extra benefit for that. And, you know, I think that is not displaying equity for sure. And I I do absolutely understand that and have empathy for that. And I'm grateful for what I did have, which says a lot because Mm -hmm. what we did have or what, you know, we were able to create there wasn't sufficient really. And I think this speaks to a lot to just our culture in general, you know, outside of the nonprofit sector, just in Western culture, you know, the it's just this horrible cycle that we have. It's like, you know, you you run yourself ragged, you run your family ragged to make more money so you can live this lifestyle that helps support it. Because if you don't, you can't, mm-hmm. essentially, you know. As we were talking about the, the woman who was sort of let go after she had the baby, I mean, she was a receptionist. She didn't have her own office. She didn't have her own space. She didn't have that ability. Now, I actually worked in a different um, organization with my second child, and they were extremely accommodating. You know, everything, the family-friendly policy, it just was. It was, of course you bring your baby. We want you here so much to be a part of our team. Do whatever you need to. Now, that was amazing, but the bottom line is I can't get a lot of work done with my baby at the office and I didn't have a lot of space we were in like one big open area mm-hmm. um so I was affecting other people's work you know and I was very aware of that and it was a very challenging situation to be in now if I had made enough money to be able to support putting my child in care with someone that I trusted you know that might have looked differently but still all the same is I should have still been on leave you know I should right. have not been at work with a two-month-old because I wasn't ready and neither was she Right. I think the fact that we don't recognize or allow it to be true that we're not ready is really indicative of how our attitudes really are about family and about how important and valuable it is to us to support people's life outside of work. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that part of it is so important to recognize because I think we even punish ourselves by doing things we're not ready to do when we need, we think we need to, you know, Mm -hmm. like partly it's because we're loyal to our employers and we still care so much about our jobs. Partly it's because we might be afraid we'll lose our jobs. Partly it might be because we just don't want people to think we're weak or, you know, we all have different reasons for having those feelings. But when I had my second child, I went back to work with him one week after he was born Mm -hmm. because I was so in such a bad position at that time based on how our organization had grown and what had been going on there for a while that I was like really sure that I was going to lose my job or be demoted or, you know, something else terrible was going to happen to me if I didn't just suck it up and go back. And what that did to me was it made me sick. Like I wasn't able to function well. I didn't take care of myself at all. I didn't go to my follow-up appointment with the midwives. I didn't go back to the doctor for like six months, maybe eight or nine months. Mm -hmm. It was a long time and I wasn't doing very well. Um, I had postpartum depression too, which I didn't notice or didn't recognize uh, for about four months. And so that I think was really detrimental as well. And if I'd had a little bit more time to have some headspace around it, I'm sure that I would have noticed it sooner or at least done something about it sooner. Because the fact was, I didn't want to go to the doctor to check into that because I didn't want to miss work. And so that was, you know, really kind of a limiting thing and, and unsafe and unhealthy And there's also, you know, a trickle-down effect, right? So there's the modeling that you're doing at such a high level um, in the organization to everyone else. Yeah. And and I think whether, you know, even outside of working families, you know, if our our top executives 
in the organization are showing us that, oh, you know, you really need to have work-life balance. And, you know, here are these extra resources we add on the side where you can take mental health days and, you know, our health insurance pays for, you know, a therapist or um, acupuncture or what, what have you. But what I'm modeling to you is that you never stop working. Mm-hmm. Then that creates the culture that is so divisive. Right. Well, and not only do I never stop working, but also I'm clearly not okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm crying every day at work. And everyone that... And I'm crying in your office with you. Yeah. And we are having whole meetings where we're eating pancakes and crying. Yeah. I had, what, like three direct reports <laughs> on this team and we all cried all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but out, at least we did it all. <laughs> you all had my postpartum depression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, I think... <laughs> pancakes were delicious. So uh, yes. that was worthwhile. And the beers when we did that. Oops. <laughs> More crying. Yeah, it was a very... not on the company dime. Just so anyone asks. Yes, of course. <laughs> no, it it was. I I think ultimately, this situation that we're describing, you know, is specific to our experience. But unfortunately, that is the case across this country in yeah. many different respects, and it's much worse. You know, where people say yes, there's FMLA, but there really isn't. Right. You know, you you work a minimum wage job. Your job is not going to be there. It right. doesn't matter that. There are more than 25 employees. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Sometimes you don't have the option to take leave at all because you are a single parent. Right. And there is no other supporter. Mm-hmm. Well, and you were actually in the position to, you were out of a job when you were pregnant mm-hmm. and had to get another job while you were pregnant, which was really challenging. Absolutely. I was 37 weeks pregnant and had to make that call. Yeah. I was like, well, at least I will be making some income while I am so huge. And uncomfortable and can't really sit in a chair, you know, but that is actually what I have to do. I also had to climb three flights of very, very steep stairs. So you were just helping yourself induce labor, I guess. Yeah, it was, it was, it was hard. All right. So one of the other things that you mentioned about how we think about family leave Mm -hmm. is that we think about it as a sickness, right? Yeah. In order to even give yourself any leave, sometimes you have to do this crazy concoction of like all of the sick days that you've earned with taking out a policy for short-term disability. If you think about that, what are you disabled from? Mm-hmm. Working, yeah. clearly. Yeah. But how are you disabled? You're, you're not. You're, you are bringing another life into this world and you are taking care of that, that person. Mm-hmm. And yourself. And yourself. Right. And don't we want whole people to come back to work and be well and to do their jobs well and not waste everyone's time by crying with them all day? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one idea I have. Well, and I think when you're also talking about being in the nonprofit sector where, you know, so much of our work is based on helping our larger community and those people, how can we actually help others if we're so broken ourselves? Right. You know, and... I think not allowing for people to take that full time. Well, yeah, when we don't give people the time to heal, we don't give people the time to be healers again. Very well said. Thanks. I learned it from watching you. You know, I think it's, it's, it, I want to actually bring up one more point here. I think it's, it's interesting because we, um, we keep talking about our old boss in this. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about it is that it's not her fault that like this, this was the way it was necessarily. And I, and I don't want to villainize her. I think what's important to recognize is that we were, we are part of an entire country that doesn't value this. And especially in the nonprofit sector where we have all kinds of like fear and scarcity around Mm -hmm. everything that we do, 
having somebody be out of the office, especially if they're really critical to our, our operations for any amount of time is hard. And then when we're, we're looking at, oh, wow, you're going to be gone for three months. Like, are you kidding me? That's insane. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of things that we have to do to kind of fill in behind a person mm -hmm. when they're out like that. And that's really challenging. And so I, I really want to acknowledge that it's not like she's a terrible person who was mean or something. It was just, you know, she was trying to do her job to run the organization, which I understand. And yet at the same time, you know, here we are kind of trying to bumble through our childbearing years and figure out like, how do I invest in my career and myself and my purpose in life and who I know I am and who I want to be and what I want to do in the world, which is, you know, all of this great stuff that is important to society. How do I continue to invest in that and also still have the option to have children if I want to? You know, I don't, I don't personally feel like it's okay for us as a society to force this binary choice on people. You either do your career or you have your child. I mean, how is it that we, how, how can we actually support people in being able to make both choices and be supported and healthy in making those choices? Mm -hmm. Understanding that there are trade-offs to every choice that we make, you know, and I think, I guess for me, I think one of the things I would like to impress is that this, that our boss was the executive director and it wasn't that she had, was all powerful and all knowing, but that ultimately the board of directors is responsible for setting personnel policy. So if you're on a board your job is to think about what kinds of policies do we want to have for our employees and for you to drive that decision making and for you as an organization then to make the choices and trade-offs within your organization to make it possible for people to have a life outside of the organization. And you can talk all day about self-care and you can say that it's important and you can even do a little workshop on it for your staff or have somebody from your EAP, your employee assistance program, come in and do you know one of their little canned workshops like take a bath go on a walk like okay you can do that all the time but uh -huh. if you don't have policies to actually support people taking the time to do that then you're not being integritous uh -huh. and that's you know not any one person's fault per se but it is the fault of the leadership for not taking on their responsibility to lead the organization in that way and that's the board's job I think that these are excellent excellent points and I'm really glad that you brought up the other side in that, well, it's not an us versus them, but just mm -hmm. the other way of thinking about it from the organization standpoint. Because I used to be a hiring manager as well in different respects, in both for profit and nonprofit. And when people need to leave for any reason, whether it's about family or medical or what have you, you know, the the panic that you have of like, oh, this person is really needed. This position is really needed. Obviously, they're a part of the larger wheel mm -hmm. and framework, what do we do? You know, I think in this culture, because of the way that we're set up in such a capitalistic sort of approach to everything, that we have to drive forward and faster and better than everybody else in order to win and succeed, and that's what success looks like, we set ourselves up to fail so that we do have this binary look at it. You know, like you, you do either have a family or you have a job. You can't really have both at the exact same time. And so you have to couple yourself with someone else who can help support you in some way. Or you find a way in which to be supported by the rest of your family or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Or you go on services. You know, and there's so much attached to that. There's so much shame. And I will say, as a, as a, as a woman in 2016, you know, I still struggle with my notion of what gender roles are. Mm -hmm. Because I've never considered myself... A stay-at-home mom, even though it's exactly what I am, mm -hmm. because I feel angst about that. I feel shame about that in a lot of ways, which is, you know, really right. 
looking at that, like that's pretty crappy because so many of my friends are, and I think they're amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I meet moms at like open gym for little kids and we chat, you know, how old's your kid? Da, 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 da. And I'm looking at them pregnant and they already have two small children. And I myself am making all of these assumptions about what their life looks like. Right. And then suddenly she tells me, Oh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor, actually. I'm just taking leave. Or we're a military family, you know, and the resources that military families have are actually pretty amazing. They might not get paid that much, but they're actually really set up to have access to a whole bunch of um, policies, services, and whatnot to really help them maintain their, their, you know, Mm -hmm. way, their lifestyle, which is, it's really rather amazing. Yeah. Well, and I think in some way we can take some of what they do as an example, potentially, you know, in in the nonprofit sector, we exist to create change, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's what we're here for is to solve problems and create change somehow. Mm -hmm. So whatever that change might be, that's why we do our jobs. And I wonder if there are some good ways that we could, as a nonprofit sector, lead um, by example. And as people who work in the nonprofit sector, perhaps take some, um, I guess, put some solutions in place for ourselves or at least attempt to, to kind of keep us in a place where we can value both family and work. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? Like what you've done in the past? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is like, you know, don't stop having children if that's what you want to do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't think it has to be either all. I think one of the first things you need to do is really advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, when you are job seeking, even if you can, if you can be that proactive, you're pretty amazing. Um, But For instance, when I was um, coming out of grad school, I already had a small child. You know, one of the first things I did before signing the acceptance letter, essentially, was not only did I negotiate for my salary, but I also negotiated for the other benefits. You know, what what does your maternity leave look like? What does your sick time leave look like? Um, Are hours flexible because I, you know, need to take my child to daycare and pick her up from there? Um, what do we do when she has to stay home? Is that okay? Can I work from home? You know, all of these things. Like, I had a really frank conversation with my boss about before I signed that letter because mm-hmm. I wanted to be very clear about what my needs were as a woman who had a family and was working. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the first things you could do. You know, again, sitting from a place of... <laughs> privilege essentially where middle class I have the ability to live in any neighborhood that I really want to truly you know Mm -hmm. and I live have now lived in several states on both sides of the the country um and it really does look different regionally but I can make that choice Mm -hmm. I can choose to live in the the cushy Willamette Valley, you know, where there are, at least on paper, are <laughs> a lot of benefits for for working families, and I can find and seek out an organization that helps support that. Mm-hmm. I can also, you know, have a full understanding of what those policies are once I've chosen to work at a place, mm-hmm. and really advocate if they need to be tweaked or changed or whatnot. You know, one thing that I always wish actually did exist was some sort of sick leave bank yeah. for anyone who, who needed it. Because sometimes you have extra, mm-hmm. right? And there are folks who genuinely need that. Yeah. And that would have been creating more of a community that worked together and was more understanding um, than the, oh, you're not in again because your kid has a fever. Right. You know? Or like if I, I had taken my kid to work at a couple times when he was, you know, mildly sick because I had stuff I really, really had to go to and do. You know, my day used to be full of full of 
meetings <laughs> nonstop. And that's basically all. Um, so I took him with me and, and that used to be okay. And then all of a sudden it wasn't okay. Like, and it was, it was interesting because there was this thing that started happening there over time where as we got bigger and mm-hmm. as things just got kind of weirder, we got, we started having, um, changes like that just sort of popped on us and, and not discussed really. And mm-hmm. I was on, you know, I was obviously like a, an executive there. And so to suddenly have like this new board, board driven policy, I'm putting finger quotes around this. Um, that says you can't bring your child to work now, like the day after I had my kid at work. It was, you yeah. know, that kind of thing is sort of weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the sick bank pieces are really good idea or even just in general, like family care leave, you know, and how you can use it can be more open-ended. Um, and honestly, I don't know that it costs a whole lot more to do it that way. Yeah. Why should you duct tape your your hard earned vacation time and and your sick time that you need for when you're legitimately sick? Yeah, you know, cobble that all together mm-hmm. just to create time for you to raise your child. Yeah, until they are, you know, at least a couple of months old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this is the place where we again looking at Western culture versus you know other cultures and other industrialized co- uh, countries who provide you up to like a full year. Of paid time off. And your job is there. Now, I would be very interested to know how organizations actually deal with that, you know, on the back end. Like, who do you get to fill this job? And, or how, what do you do with the position? You know, do you put those programs on hold depending on what they're in charge of? You know, it's really very interesting to me. But obviously, if other countries can do it, Mm -hmm. and they are still, you know, competitive in the world's economy, so to speak, like, you know... Clearly, it shows what their values are. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And if we have values to help people and change things, then this is a no-brainer in my mind. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things um, that we've been talking about is kind of that system level. Oh, we happen to have a baby in the room with us, by the way, because we're walking our talk. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This sort of system level change um, that we would like to advocate for. And so in some way, it's finding groups that might be doing that kind of advocacy already or even starting it on your own if you don't have something like that local. Mm-hmm. Um, we're lucky here in Oregon we have an organization that I really love called Family Forward and they do a lot of work on advocating for family-friendly policies in the public arena and beyond um, and so they they're doing work actually right now they have a program that's a partnership with um, the SEIU union. Um, I know that the, I said you and union, so it's a repetitive thing, but just pardon me for a moment. But the, uh, the their project together is called CareWorks, and it's all about how to deal with care across life. Um, so it includes not only family leave and affordability and equitable access to child care, quality child care, yeah. but also the kinds of care needs that happen later in life or when someone is is injured or disabled, mm-hmm. um, what that looks like, how it's how it's accessed. And on the flip side of that, how we pay people who work in the care industries, because we do need to think about that as well. You know, my kids, my kids, daycare workers, their teachers at daycare are like part of the family. And I know you have a really similar yes. experience to that too. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, Sarah's visiting right now from, um, 
Rhode Island and she's back in Oregon just for a week and her daughter got to go back to her daycare where she grew up and it's been kind of fun to see like on Facebook all the pictures of the reunion you know (laughs) you know just hearing about that and that's such a close relationship and you value those people so much and you want them to be paid well and to stay where they are because your kids rely on them every day Mm -hmm. you know and I do and I was actually on the board for the entire time that my child was in care there because I really wanted to be heavily involved in advocating not just for her care and education Mm -hmm. but also the teachers that were there because they were so important to us so I advocated for their raise increases and still with their pay it is of course not enough you know but I think within the limits of their budget they are paying you know certainly (laughs) say hi Willa (laughs) you have so many opinions that I really support that yes I do too I think that notion of paying the people who take care of your children well um, is, a, is an important one because it is all about retention, right? And about that quality of care as a whole. And on the other side of it, too, making that care affordable for families, mm-hmm. right? Because one of the reasons why when I was re-entering the workforce for the second time and trying to decide what was more important to me, trying to carve out a living, um, well, not just important, but my ability to do so, trying to carve out a living or pay for care. Right. And, of course, that problem that often exists here for families in the U.S. is they didn't equate. You know, right. I'm going to be paying more for someone to watch and raise my child than, than for what I would make, essentially, mm-hmm. and working. And it just didn't make any sense for our family. And so, ultimately, I decided not to work outside of the home. Um, while Willa is still such a small, small kiddo. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, the lower-priced um, childcare options that exist weren't a quality care mm-hmm. system at all. And that has a lot to do with how much we are paying those people, right. how much those nonprofit organizations are paying their people. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, I think that's another piece is how do we lead the way on changing this for people is if we are in the par- part of the nonprofit sector that represents childcare. Uh, finding ways to pay our staff what they serve. You know, I mean, I think I'm working with um, a Head Start Association right now. One of the biggest issues that they face is staff turnover. Mm-hmm. And they point directly to the pay mm-hmm. because they require that people who are lead teachers have a master's degree and they don't pay them enough money to sustain a life, you know, especially after that much education. So they have options and they take those options when they have to. And oftentimes with a heavy heart, because it's not that they want to leave what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's just that they aren't able to stay there because they need a living wage. Yeah. Cause we all have our lives so we all have to pay for them. And so that's, that's an important thing for us to continuously recognize. And it's, you know, Across the board in the nonprofit sector, how people on the outside, of course, look at at the way that we um, set up our budgets, right? And how much, if I'm giving money to you, like this is the age old like Dan Pelota thing, right? So if I'm giving money to you, where is that actually going? Is it going directly for services for people that Mm -hmm. I sort of care about and I'm pretending to be altruistic? And also, P.S., that I know everything about how to serve because I am the one that has money. Yes, right. I should tell you how you should do your job. Mm -hmm. But no, really, where is my dollar going? And how dare you use it for operations or overhead or for paying the people who are actually doing the work? And ultimately, isn't that all the same? You know, like 
it's not like if I'm if you want to give put a dollar in somebody's hand who's living off the street, you go ahead and do that. Do you know how far that dollar is actually gonna go to that with that person? It's gonna get them whatever whatever food they can buy. Or whatever else they're going to buy with that dollar, quite honestly. But if you give a dollar to an organization that has wraparound services for a person who lives on the street, that dollar is actually going to get stretched a lot more. Yeah, and it goes to hopefully helping that person not live in that situation anymore. I mean, the right. idea is to move people out of poverty most often. Not always, but yeah, I mean, generally. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the concept behind a lot of the work that we do with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's, it's clear from everything that I ever say and write that I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think it's it's important for us as nonprofits in general to advocate for ourselves and to say, hey, look, it actually costs this much to do business. And, and P.S., not hide your costs mm-hmm. in a complicated budget that pretends like all of your services go to program or all of your money goes to program somehow because you're, you know, allocating admin to these programs and acting like it's actually a part of the program budget. So, you know, we don't need to do complicated budgets and kind of obfuscate the truth if we can really all band together and say, hey, guess what, everyone who gives us money, it costs more than 10% or no overhead to do business. Mm -hmm. And I'd also love to see any business in the world that honestly operates without any overhead. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. It's impossible to think that we could sustain the work that we're doing, right, and mm-hmm. helping our community without paying our people right. or without making a revenue. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you—it's not like that money is going in the pockets of our, our CEOs, right? And so, what if some of it does? Because we want that really awesome person to stay in this job and help create a vision forward where we're essentially working ourselves out of jobs eventually someday, you know? Yeah. Where homelessness isn't such a big problem in this area, where there is affordable housing, where people have enough to eat, you know, and they're getting the services that they need um, in order to lead their full lives. And when and if they get jobs, right, and they have families, that they have a place that they can afford to have care for them, or you know, that there is some actual balance that is valued between a working family and, you know, having having time with them. Yeah. You know, there are really great places that provide daycare, too, on site. And those are usually huge universities or healthcare institutions or what have you. And I feel like, why... Why do they only exist in those realms, you know? I just think that that's a really great idea and Mm -hmm. certainly makes um, that work-life balance a little bit easier to achieve. Yeah. And it would be interesting to see, you know, how to advocate for that happening even in the nonprofit sector, even if it was more about a partnering situation. Sure. So, like, a almost like a co-op of different nonprofits that get together and try to provide that for their staff. Yeah. Yeah. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a really cool idea, too. And I'm sure there are examples of that, potentially, somewhere. And I'd love to hear from anybody that knows about something like that, too. So if you have any um, information about organizations like that that exist, send us an email at mail at nononsensenonprofit.com because I would love to know more about it. Well, I think it's about time for us to wrap up. But I really want to thank you for being with us today on the podcast and talking about this. It's you know it's a really personal issue, but it's also a very universal issue. And um, I think it's important for us in the nonprofit sector to think about how we want to approach things like this um, as a sector and how we want to put our values together. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for having Willa, too. Oh, yeah. And any, thank you for being here, too, Willa. Any last words? 
Do you have anything cute to say or do? That's right. She's being very passionate right now. Thanks for joining us for No Nonsense Nonprofit. Send us your thoughts about today's topic at our Facebook page, No Nonsense Nonprofit, on our blog, or by email to mail at nononsensenonprofit.com.